Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. Amazingly, we are almost to the end of 2020. And so we're going to be doing a number of look backs on the year. And I think we're going to be doing a staff cast later this week uh, with our with our awards for the year. But to give us a little bit of perspective on this amazing, awful, terrible, very, very bad year. Um, we're joined by historian Kevin Cruz. Uh, thanks for coming back on the podcast. Uh, Kevin, Always a pleasure. It. So let's talk about 2020. Because I noticed something you mentioned in in USA Today this morning. Um and I'm always trying to put this in perspective because there's there's always the danger to catastrophize any moment. And you think, okay, this is the worst year ever, but you know, is it any worse than is it worse than things that were going on in, in the 1850s or the 1930s or the 1960s? But but you made the point that we kind of had the perfect storm of all the things happening at once: pandemic, economic crisis, racial tension, and this incredibly screwed up election. So 2020, give me your take on this year and and how it's going to rank in terms of history, because a lot of us at the end of the year are going, this is kind of a year like like no other year, but I'm guessing people have said that before. Yeah, people have said that before. Um, so, so let me start off by saying, um, I know everyone out there is waiting for an historian to tell them this, but but this was a bad year. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was not, not a good one. Uh, and, and as I noted in that, uh, that interview with Susan Page, the um, We've had all these bad things before, right? We, we've had economic crises before. We've had a major pandemic before. Uh, certainly think about the Spanish flu about 100 years ago. We've had moments of significant racial conflict and, uh, and, 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 and unrest. Uh, we've had presidents get impeached. We've had major scandals uh, in an administration. We've had all these things before. We just haven't had them all at once right on top of one another. Uh, and that, I think, is what is really... Uh, remarkable about this year is that we've had to uh, navigate a number of overlapping uh, crises, which only echoed and amplified each other and made the entire thing much worse. Uh, and, and that's the real the real shock here. I, I'm a I'm a child uh, of the '80s, uh, and the the term I like to use for this will resonate with other Gen Xers. It's disaster Voltron. It's all of these. <laughs> it's all of these little problems that are are intimidating enough on their own. You put them together, it's a huge, huge issue, uh, and, and that's where we're at. Uh, and, and it really has been remarkable. And I think what people need to realize is that, uh, and I see this, we've seen this every year in the Trump administration, where people are like, "Well, goodbye, 2016. That was a horrible year. Oh, well, <laughs> goodbye, 2017. That was bad. You know, so long, 2018, and, and it only gets worse." Just because Biden's coming in, the vaccine's on its way, doesn't mean that things are magically going to reset in 2021. I am cautiously optimistic uh, that it's going to be slightly better. Uh, it's hard to be worse than 2020, uh, but but we'll see. Uh, but so as we as we as we turn the page, as we burn the page on 2020, uh, you know, realize that we've been through uh, an awful lot, and 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 give yourself a pat on the back simply for making it to the finish line, just for surviving, just for surviving. But again, don't 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 have the false hope that it's going to magically reset. I think. Well, how much is, I want to sort of break this down a little bit to the the objective reality is you know we had the pandemic, we had the economic crisis, the racial tension, the election that that actually all happened all all at once. But then there's also the subjective way that we experience it. It's just in our face yeah. all of the time. So that whatever year you could pick up saying this year was a lot worse than this, you didn't experience it the way we experience it. So I mean, how does that color the experience? Because it does feel in the Trump era 
as if it just keeps coming again and again and again. Yeah. And there's no break. There's no one news cycle. It's like you're being hammered by one micro cycle after another. Yeah, no, and that's an excellent point. And I do think that the uh, um, uh, the changes in te- technology, the immediacy uh, through cable TV, through the internet, through social media, certainly is something that makes all these problems seem much worse. Uh, so, so take any of the ones we, we talked to. Take take um, a, a racial conflict. There have been complaints about police brutality uh, in the African American community for forever. Uh, the problem uh, uh, has always been there. It's just it's now it's in everyone's faces. It's in everyone's hands through their smartphones because everyone has recording equipment on them. We're capturing these incidents. Uh, we're capturing the 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 death, the assault on African Americans by the hands of the police, and people can't ignore it. They can't look away. It's it's right there. And so it becomes a constant uh, drumbeat. And then the organizing that takes place around those issues. Again, Black Lives Matter started mm-hmm. as a hashtag, right? Uh, it was something that was mobilizing on social media. So again, that ropes more people in. And so it's you can't pretend you're not aware of it. Uh, you can't pretend you you, you can't act on it. Uh, there's a real, uh, a, a real immediacy here. Uh, and that makes it just inescapable. And so that on every single issue, constantly in uh, in everyone's faces uh, uh, nonstop uh, is, I think, leading to a bit of an overload. And then there's also the fact that everyone's allowed to participate now. You know, uh, the, the the glory of the internet was, oh, everyone will have a voice. The problem is now everyone has a voice and we're all shouting at the same time. And so that amplifies misinformation. It highlights conflict. Uh, it just intensifies uh, everything. So it really is uh, just kind of a, an overload of, of information and misinformation all at the same time, uh, which is just uh, uh, quite a lot. You see, and, and I think that's another one of the disorienting things that we're going through right now, which is that our sense of reality has been broken. I was thinking about it over the, the weekend, and you were mentioning before we started the podcast that you'd kind of been able to bliss out over the Christmas weekend, and I give you credit for that. I really was trying to, and and I, t- I tried to, but but something was sort of nagging. You know, e- even though I know that things are about to get better, I think they're going about to get better, that we've we've survived the, so far, the, the, the Trump era. I think what was really getting to me was this, the sense that every single day, your understanding of reality is, is, is attacked is that that people believe things that are just not true and that we've had other crises in the past, but there was at least some sort of shared facts, shared reality, shared Mm -hmm. world. Now it feels so completely disorienting and, and that on top of everything else you've described, I think is one of the things that makes this period unlike other other moments in history. I think that's exactly right. Look, we, we've, uh, you know, in past years, we were incredibly divided, but there was at least a shared sense of what was going on. Yeah. Uh, people would right. disagree about what to do about them. But, you know, it, it, say in, in 1968, which is probably the last time the country was this uh, torn apart this divided between you know Vietnam, the Tet Offensive, the assassinations of uh, Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the Chicago Convention, uh, it, everything was going on the George Wallace campaign. It was an incredibly hectic and divisive year, and yet there was you know this thing we mock now as the mainstream media was there, and Americans started with a shared sense 
of what the facts were, right? And, and there were basic uh, agreements on that. Again, what you might do about them w- would be wildly mm-hmm. different, but the starting point was largely agreed upon. And now, uh, you know, the, the Venn diagram of, of of basic facts that, that that some Americans have, you know, it's it's not just two separate circles; they're they're in separate rooms, yeah. uh, and that is really uh, really a problem. Uh, and, uh, and, and because if you can't even agree on what's going on, you, you can't have a conversation about, about wh- wh- what to do. Um, it's just, it's a completely alternate, uh, reality we've got out there. Uh, and, uh, and I don't see a sign of that ending anytime soon. In fact, I think as we head into the, you know, uh, Biden administration, uh, if, if Trump is in exile, you know, Mar-a-Lago or, or somewhere, uh, it's much easier to maintain that fiction if it's just solely complaining about, the powers that be and not having to justify what you've done. So I think that continues. I'm really glad you came up with 1968 because I, w- I was going to ask you this question of what year would be a parallel year to have experienced. I think 1968 is a really good example because so much was going on and it was so intense. You know, the assassinations, the conventions, the election, the war, everything. And th- I mean, things mattered. I mean, it was it was consequential. Um, but But you're right. It didn't feel as losing control as this particular moment that, that we have right right here uh and i remember 1968 re- completely vi- vividly here's another thing that, that i think is interesting when you look back on 2020 is the dan- the the difficulty of making predictions about what's going to happen if you and i were talking one year ago today and we were sitting here saying, what do you think the big story of 2020 is going to be? Mm-hmm. I would certainly be tempted to say, well, it's going to be dominated by the impeachment of the president. Right. 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 And where does that fit in now as we look back on 2020? It's just one data point among many. You might not even get to it in your top five points. No, it's been it's been completely washed away. And I think the the, the fact that it was. Uh, basically a done deal uh, that that was not going to, you know, he was not going to be removed, uh, but the the, the McConnell and the Republican Senate had made that clear from the start, uh, made it a bit anticlimactic to to begin with, but it was certainly completely washed away uh, by events. Uh, I I will say, I think the impeachment takes on a new light in, in in terms of the president's response to losing this election. I think that the the argument that he had uh, gone to great lengths to, um, with Ukraine to block Biden uh, certainly seems a lot more plausible now than uh, than it did even back then, uh, uh, and yeah, it's it, but it's it, it's it's remarkable. You know, when you think back to the early months of of, of twenty twenty, uh, again the fact that the impeachment was in there. Remember when uh, Australia was on fire and that was the the, the top story oh for for several weeks. Right, that's completely gone, uh, and that's that's a major. Uh, we haven't, you know, erased the damage done by that, but it just got completely washed away by the tide of events that came after. And so, you know, as we look back over this calendar year, especially those early months before uh, the wheels seemed to come off, we all went into a lockdown. Uh, it's remarkable how much has just gone down the memory hole. And also go, going back to the, how disorienting our, our time is, I see that Nikki Haley is uh, is now tweeting and trying to uh, burnish her uh, Trumpian credentials by right. saying this was the year that socialism made its what its its resurgence and i'm going okay in what particular way considering right. the president trump was in power and the senate was in you know controlled by republicans to me the most remarkable and disorienting thing has been the the willingness of so many people particularly on the right right now uh to 
to, I mean, again, it's not new that they're trashing constitutional norms, but their willingness to embrace what feels like naked authoritarianism. I mean, the fact that we are sitting here a week before uh, an unknown number of Republican elected officials may vote to overturn an American presidential election. They won't do it, but they will vote to overturn an American president is a really remarkable moment in American history because a lot of things we'd taken for granted um, have been shattered and, and, you know, socialism is not one of them. Right, right. Yeah, the idea that that, that socialism is our is our pressing issue here. Uh, given the the you know uh, Bernie Sanders, uh, 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 you know, certainly had a, had a moment. AOC had a moment, but but they certainly haven't kind of taken over the Democratic Party. Certainly not the country. Uh, but meanwhile, this authoritarianism really is remarkable. And we've had we've had challenges uh, to the electoral college uh, uh, certification before. Uh, you know, we we saw it in 2000. There were some some uh, Democratic representatives who who challenged it, and Gore had to sit there and gavel them down. Uh, we had in 2004, in which it actually we had a senator and a House member, so we we considered mm-hmm. Ohio for two hours. That was a brief pause. So so that's happened before, and it's it's clearly going to happen again. It's not going to go anywhere, but it'll it'll happen again. Uh, but what I think is even more alarming are the fact that we have to have reassurances from the military that they're not going to in oh. fact stage a coup. Uh, that that we've had, um, you know, usually routine certification of votes in the states uh, that, uh, you know, we're up in the air. Uh, that we've had, uh, you know, in, in Michigan, uh, the this, this, this plot to kidnap and execute the governor. I mean, we've just sort of forgotten about that. Uh, it's, 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 it's not just remarkable, it's, it's alarming. Uh, and, and it shows, I think, that a certain segment of the American populace has, has crossed a line that we all kind of assumed was a, was a fairly solid barrier uh, to, to, to just an, an open embrace uh, of authoritarian politics uh, and, and really wanting whatever they can to have uh, uh, their leader uh, remain in power forever. I admit I'm a little bit obsessed about this. The the Rasmussen report tweets, which I'm sure that you saw uh, yesterday. This is the Trumpish uh, mm-hmm. uh, polling outfit. Has has a tweet in which they're they're quoting. It's a bogus quote from from Joseph Stalin that it doesn't matter who you know cast the vote. It matters who counts the vote. And then goes on uses that as the preface to make the argument that that Vice President Pence could just simply choose not to count the votes from six contested states and thereby declare Donald yeah. Trump the winner. I mean, it is so completely it is nonsense on stilts. It is complete bullshit. But yeah. the fact that we're even talking about right. that and that some people think that it would be okay for the vice president to just simply say, no, I'm just not going to count the votes of tens of millions of Americans. And mm-hmm. because what? That's what makes America great again? Right. Right. Uh, uh, it, the, the, the assumption is Trump alone makes America great and whatever is needed to keep the 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 dear leader in power uh, has to happen and it's just it's it's staggering and i think he, uh, the, the fact that trump uh, that uh, sorry that pence has travel plans to leave the country immediately after uh, the vote on on january 6 uh, speaks volumes about how little he wants to have to do with any of this you know, and we're just sort of leaving aside, you know, the calls for martial law and uh, th- things like that and the, the use of the military, which is, is sort of rattling, um, although the fact that we kind of need to look over our shoulders is an indication of this. And this was not that close an election. I mean, let's just yeah. just take a deep breath here. Um, you know, compared to 2004, 2000, 7 million popular mm-hmm. vote lead is not insignificant. No. 306 electoral votes to 232 electoral votes is exactly the margin that that Donald Trump said was a landslide. Right. Nobody had ever seen a landslide like right. this. 
and yet we're still doing this. I guess the other thing that that is disorienting about the year, and maybe it shouldn't be, you know, when you when you look back on on what we predicted was going to happen here, but you know, you have people like Lynn Wood and Sidney Powell, these two crackpot lawyers who are coming up with these absolutely insane, deranged, demented conspiracy theories. And they have the ear of the president, you know, mm-hmm. more or less, depending on what day it is. And so that one of the biggest vectors of disinformation in this country is the president of the United States. Yeah. So, you know, we're not like four years ago, we were talking about Russian disinformation and all of this stuff. You know, Vladimir Putin doesn't need to lift a finger because no. right now the, the 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 flood of the farrago of lies, the whirlwind of bullshit is coming right out of the presidency of the United States, which is like, damn. And, and there are people who still want four more years of that. That's really the remarkable thing, uh, you know. And, and as you noted, the the election wasn't close, but for to, to have seen Trump's share of the vote go up, yeah, uh, was was not share, but his his his, his overall vote total uh, was really remarkable. Uh, and, and it shows that there are people for whom this is, you know, the ma- again, as you noted, the mask has come off, and they're and they're in- incredibly happy and content to have uh, have their kind of authoritarian in power. Okay, so uh, we, we've sort of been dancing around this, whether things are going to get better in, in the near term or the short term. So I, I want to look back on other periods of American history that mm-hmm. we got through somehow. I mean, the 1850s, awful. Yeah. Fever breaks, takes the American Civil War. 1930s, the Great Depression, takes World War II to sort of break that fever. Mm-hmm. And by the 1950s, things were kind of great. 1960s, you mentioned we were tearing ourselves apart. You know, a couple of decades later, it was sort of peace and prosperity. So give me your sense. What does it take? Because in each one of those, it took some sort of a cataclysm. Yeah. So are the patterns the same or have we moved into a new category because of because of the in- information ecosystem, because of the political divisions, because of demographic changes? Are, are, do we see the same pattern that there is some sort of a, you know, way out of this? Uh, I, I don't see a, a clear way out of this. I, I mean, I think either. each of those each of those moments in the past, you know, were so take the, the the two biggest ones you mentioned there, the kind of the onset of the Civil War and and the Great Depression. Uh, and both of those, you had a situation in which the uh, the political solutions were uh, made easier by the fact that one party suddenly controlled everything. Right with, with the Civil War uh, and the secession of the of the Democratic states in the South, Republicans uh, had the power to do whatever you want. That's why that uh, the Republican Congress of the 1860s suddenly got so much done. You know, those radical Republicans were putting through all these these big government plans. You got the so not just the prosecution of the war, but the the land grant college system, or the transcontinental railroad, or the the first income tax—all these major things they put through were because there was no opposition, right? Uh, and in the 1930s, it's the decimation of the Republican Party on the other end, and the Democrats basically have overwhelming majorities in, in both houses and an incredibly popular new president. They push through all the New Deal uh, measures uh, relatively quickly, relatively easily, uh, because there's no opposition. We are in a moment of no matter what happens with these Georgia races, uh, even if uh, Democrats should somehow uh, take both of them and, and take the Senate at a narrow margin, you'd still have you know basically Joe Manchin as you know kind of the balance of power. Uh, you're not going to have these overwhelming margins for for the for the Biden administration and Democrats, so you're not going to be able to see that kind of swift movement, and that political paralysis is um, reinforced by. 
the uh, by the media uh, division, uh, in which again, as we talked about earlier, you've got just totally separate worlds of of of, of alternate facts on on one side and real facts on the other, and uh, never the two shall meet. Uh, and so, uh, I don't think we've got uh, uh, we certainly have the the crisis uh, that would normally precipitate this change, but the political uh, and the media systems are such that they haven't budged yet. Uh, and, and if, if, if the last four years couldn't do it, I'm not quite sure what will. And it's not clear that our racial divisions have been, have, have, have been eased in any way from this year or the other demographic divisions between red and blue States. Right. Those all seem to be as raw as they were at the beginning of, of last year. So that, that's what makes it tough. So Joe Biden wants to be a consequential president. It's going to be very, very difficult to do that for all of the reasons you just mentioned, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and I think it's going to be difficult to do that because uh, Biden, for some reason, is still buying into this idea that, and I think this speaks to his long service in the Senate, he's got an old-fashioned idea of what the Senate was. Uh, and, and he thinks that he can reach across the aisle and Mitch McConnell will happily work with him when everything from Mitch McConnell's own uh, experience during the Obama years certainly showed that his path to success was through just kind of knee-jerk obstructionism. Uh, and, and that helped him in his caucus and, and helped solidify his power and his control. And he'll do everything he can to maintain that. So I think Biden somehow had a front row seat uh, for the Obama years in which uh, a Republican obstructionism eventually disabused President Obama of his belief that America had somehow come into a, a post-partisan uh, landscape. Uh, and and uh, even though Biden was front and center for that, he, he didn't really learn the lessons of that. And, and so he's going to try to start from a position of compromise. And it's gonna, I, I think it's going to wind up, if he hews to his line he's projecting, it's going to mean that he's hamstrung from the start and he'll miss his chance to do anything at the start. And then uh, uh, his his popularity and his, and his kind of honeymoon period will be over and, and that'll be that. So I think he's he's got to come, if he wants to be a consequential president, he's got to come out of the gate. Uh, strong. He's got to come out uh, uh, swinging, uh, not from a position of of compromise at the start, uh, not from these kind of, you know, these uh, $600 means tested uh, uh, tax rebate or something like that, uh, but to, to really come out with some big, bold proposals and try to capture the American people's uh, mind and, and, and harness their support. Uh, but if he starts out from this position of compromise, I, I think it's going to go nowhere. So big infrastructure plan? We will actually have the real infrastructure week that we've been promised. You know, we've been promised it for four years, and and I think we might actually finally get it. You know, uh, uh, Biden is a guy who, uh, when you look at his his real accomplishments in the Obama administration, he was overseeing the stimulus money, uh, and 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 that was a program that they really undersold, but it was incredibly successful. It was largely scandal free. It, it did a lot of development projects. Uh, as we know, Biden is a, is is a huge Amtrak guy, so I'm sure he'll want to beef up the rail uh, support too. But those are, are programs that the country badly needs uh, and uh, and can use. So yeah, I think that would be the kind of thing uh, that would really, uh, really, really kickstart uh, uh, his administration and would be right up his sleeve. But he's got to do, he's got to do more than that. He's got to go, he's got to go big across the board, I think. So the two things that, he, that are going to determine the success of his presidency, at least in the next uh, two years, would be the the coronavirus vaccine distribution, having that be successful or not, uh, and and br and bringing back the economy. The problem is that that in this world that we live in, 
Trump world is not going to acknowledge either one of those successes yeah. because they will say that uh, Trump gets should get credit for both the vaccine and for the economic recovery. And of course, um, there's going to be this continuing campaign that uh, Joe Biden is not the legitimate president, that right. uh, Donald Trump was uh, was cheated, that he was stabbed in the back. And um, we both know the the durability, the historical uh, durability of stab in the back myth mm-hmm. and how it can shape politics, not just for two years, but maybe for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the real danger. And I think clearly the end game with these kind of endless, ridiculous complaints about the election, which keep getting laughed out of court, even by Trump's own appointees in several of these courts have laughed them out because they're, they're so far out there, but they're not playing for the court of law. They're playing for the court of public opinion here. Uh, and that's been the goal all along to, to kind of delegitimize Biden so he, he is hamstrung from the start. And again, that any, as you noted, any success that comes in his term has to be attributed uh, back to, to Donald Trump. Um, I do think Biden um, uh, will, will tackle those two problems you identified, uh, I think, fairly well. Uh, I think they've got uh, good people in charge of the science and uh, um, uh, the logistical issues of getting the vaccine out will be something that they'll actually be able to handle well. That's the boring uh, a competency of government, which is what the Biden uh, team seems to be all about. I think they'll they'll really tackle that well. And then once that's under control, then the economy uh, comes back. I think uh, so much of the Trump approach was putting the cart before the horse, saying, "Well, we've got to get people back to work. Uh, we can't, you know, really go into lockdown. We can't really have these uh, these these measures which are going to help alleviate the vaccine. We got to put the economy first. Not realizing the economy only surges back when people are comfortable with it. You know, people aren't going to, uh, at least people I know, aren't going to restaurants or theaters uh, because of some uh, government ban because they don't feel safe. Uh, and you've got to make people feel safe and secure before they go back. So I think those two things will happen. But when they do, as you know, uh, the, the, there's a certain segment of the Trump right, which will say Biden's illegitimate. All these successes, uh, as all successes in Trump land uh, do, they all come from from dear leader Trump. Uh, and, uh, and they'll, they'll certainly be arguing that I think at some point the rest of the country has to stop caring about that. Uh, and I don't say that lightly because you know, that stab in the back, uh, uh, um, uh, uh mythology is a really dangerous one out there, but it also thrives on oxygen. Right. And so mm-hmm. I think that, you know, the New York times needs to not spend the next four years going to, uh, find out, you know, despairing Trump voters uh, in, in Heartland Diners and interviewing them every other week, right? Uh, we don't need uh, kind of the Trump whisperers on on, on CNN uh, uh, amplifying these, these viewpoints uh, beyond their actual weight. Um, uh, instead, we need to, I think, listen to the people who voted for Biden uh, and see what they think and, and, and if they think he's still on track. You know, hold that same standard that they used for Trump to Biden. See how his voters think he's doing. Fine. Let's check in on them. Uh, but I think if you give that, uh, if you give the conspiracy theorists uh, and the denialists too much oxygen, it only it only will amplify it. No, I, I, I think you're right about that. I think that uh, you can just take so much uh, Rick Santorum on CNN um, before Oof. you need to, to, uh, to, t- to turn the channel. So. I have to ask you about this because I'm, I'm and I, I told you this before we started the podcast. I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with this as well. But um, tell me about you and Dinesh D'Souza and, and how that started and what that's about. And I, I mentioned this because, you know, I first became acquainted with him back in the mid 1980s when we were both writing books about higher education. And he was considered to be a serious scholar. 
yeah. on on the right. You know, he graduated from Dartmouth. He was, you know, one of the editors of the Dartmouth Review and wrote a, a widely praised book about higher education, and then mm-hmm. and then became. I mean, he was, but he was, you know, very very mainstream. And now he's become something different, but you've dealt with him on history. So just tell me right. about how that ever came about the whole Kevin Cruz, Dinesh D'Souza thing. Uh, it, it was a thing. Uh, I guess it still is. Uh, he's been awfully quiet lately. Thank God. Uh, there was a period there. I guess this was probably the summer of, of, of 2018 where for some reason, uh, he started making claims about about the field I work in, a uh, 20th century uh, political history. Uh, I specialize uh, in the South, uh, and he was just making some ludicrous nonsense claims, and I started rebutting them on 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 Twitter, and it 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 got a pretty good following. I think uh, I quickly realized, well, a lot of people don't like this guy, uh, and are 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 excited to see him uh, uh, dunked on, as they said. Um, it. It went on for about, a, I think, a year and a half. He's again, he's been quiet. I don't know if he's moved on to other topics. I th- I saw he's been making, he's angering the the climate change uh, 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 folks with it, with a new brand of denial. So maybe he's moved on to science for a while. Uh, yeah, yeah, let them let them play with him. Uh, but yeah, it, it it petered out because it it became it, it was kind of predictable. Uh, he would make a, a false claim. I would provide. Um, uh, the actual facts and and show my work. I would give, you know, that's the beauty of Twitter. You can, you know, provide screenshots of newspaper accounts or speeches or, or links to audio or video uh, to show that, uh, that his claims, which are always made without any proof, it's just a, an assertion flat uh, with no backup. And then when you provide the evidence uh, he would, he would run away. Uh, and there were several bizarre claims he made. There was one where he insisted that, um, uh, no one in college ever uh, teaches that the uh, the Democrats were the party of slavery and secession, which is mind blowing. Uh, I'm not sure how he thinks we teach uh, the coming of the Civil War, uh, how he thinks we teach uh, uh, civil rights history. Those are pretty big themes. I've written about them prominently in my own book. He insisted they were never in any progressive tr- textbook. I've repeatedly asked him to provide uh, a single example because I found it in lots of progressive textbooks. Uh, those kind of things on and on. It, it was, I think what finally broke him was when he made an assertion that no Republican owned slaves in 1860 and several of us came out of the woodwork to say, no, actually, look, these ones did. Uh, and, and that finally made him, uh, I think, back off history for a little bit. I'm sure he'll be back, though. Oh, he will definitely be back. And, 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 you know, in a lot of ways, you know, I wrote a book called, you know, How the Right Lost Its Mind. You, you mm-hmm. could do a version of that. I could do a version of that or you could do a version of that just focusing on, you know, guys like Dinesh D'Souza who became big celebrities on the right were taken right. seriously and then became celebrities. These are two different things. You know, he, he had a hard time deciding what he wanted to be when he grew up. Right. Did right. he want to be a filmmaker? Did he want to be a Twitter guy? Did he want to be, you know, sort of a Ben Shapiro like figure or did he want to be taken seriously as an academic? He was actually president of a college for a while mm-hmm. before he was fired for whatever, some personal issues. Um but he was a movie maker. And so he became kind of, you know, this multimedia uh, celebrity who was able to morph into a Trumpian figure really seamlessly. You know, yeah. the, the line from Dinesh D'Souza in the 1980s to being the guy who is completely pro-MAGA and actually pardoned by Donald Trump. I mean, mm-hmm. it's really kind of extraordinary. You know, his, you know, the, you know, the, 
just the the devolution of the character and he seems like a type because there seems like there's so many of those folks who had their moment and then maybe got out over the to use the cliche got out over their skis decided mm-hmm. they were smarter they were wiser or or they became addicted to the grift yeah and um the when you become addicted to the grift you do all sorts of things and unfortunately all the reward structure has been it's, it's like this huge magnet with all the filings being drawn in you know the nest to susan's all of those other folks you know drawn into trump world and yeah. uh, and now we see where they are yeah so. the, the question i get constantly from people whenever these things come up is is he that stupid or is it solely an act for the grift and i i've gone back and forth on this he's, he's made a couple flubs that seem so obviously stupid that i i think he might actually be that dumb but I tend to lean to the idea that this is all about keeping the money rolling in, profiting off the the MAGA crowd and, and appealing to, to to them and realizing that's where his market is. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think there, there is certainly a, a larger subset of, of these folks who've who've realized that, that this is their um, this is where they they go. This is where their their profitability is. And not just in terms of, of commentators. We've seen this with politicians. You know, there were a lot of uh, there are a lot of Republicans who seem to be in the never Trump crowd. Uh, through 2016, like Lindsey Graham, who, you know, went all in on on Trump after a while. So, Marco Rubio. Uh, Marco Rubio, right. Jeez. No, see, Dinesh D'Souza, I, I just assume that he's very, very intelligent, but that he's sort of lazy, arrogant, and dishonest. So, you know, it's not not so much on the smart, dumb uh, continuum. Yeah. It's on the, it's on the you know, the the opportunist. Um, and, and he will make statements, throw stuff out because he doesn't think that there's going to be any any check. And this is the other thing that's happened for on, on the right is because you have this alternative reality universe, you can say things without any consequence. Yeah. It's not as if he needs to be concerned about legitimate peer review or other scholars supporting him. He figures mm-hmm. that there's this vast universe out there. And Donald Trump understands this, I think, quite instinctively as well, is that he knows that, and I think it's you know at the root of his contempt for his own crowd, is that he can spread this complete, utter bullshit. And he really won't be called on it with the people that right. he really cares about. And I think right. Dinesh is in that. So you, you mentioned there's been a lot of others. So, so do you have any thoughts about Lindsey Graham and Marco Rubio and, and what's going on with, with them. Um, I have, I have, I mean, I mean uh, the obvious answer I, I think is probably the likely one is that they've seen where the base of the party has gone and they have ambitions that they want to stay in office and they are following that. Uh, and, and I think that it's, it's less, you know, looking at Donald Trump that we need to do and, and look at like Eric Cantor, right? right. Cantor was as, had the credentials down for the right on everything except for immigration. And that one weakness uh, cost him. Uh, and he got primaried by Dave Bratt from the right and, and lost his job. If someone like Eric Cantor uh, can be booted out for not being sufficiently pure on the right, uh, they're all looking over their shoulders uh, that way. And so I think that's what, what kept Graham okay. in line and Rubio too. Okay. I, I think that's, that that's true, but is there a way that you can navigate this without making yourself absurd? And yeah. I guess that's the question is there are, I mean, there, you don't need to comment on everything. Um, Marco Rubio was not required to come out and attack Anthony Fauci right. this right. week. I mean, what's that about at this yeah. particular moment in, in, in history, Donald Trump's about to leave. Yes, obviously he wants to, you know, make, keep the MAGA crowd happy, but 
are there ways of doing it without making yourself utterly, without completely degrading yourself? And maybe the answer to that is no in this environment. I mean, you know, Josh Hawley tried to be like all intellectual and come up yeah. with some sort of Trumpian yeah. thing, but, 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 you know, ultimately he comes back and he has to do the, you know, he has to be, be clown himself in some yeah. Trumpian fashion. No, I, I don't think, I, don't, I think there's no clear path forward. I, I think the only way to maintain your dignity as a Republican right now, as a politician, would be to uh, a stay silent, as so many of them do. We've lived through four years of of uh, Republican senators on repeat of, no, I haven't seen the, the tweet, I can't comment on it, uh, of just being in utter denial. Or um, uh, trying to, uh, to stick to your, your guns and have some sort of um, self-respect. We've seen this with Mitt Romney, I think certainly. Uh, ben Sass, to some degree, has, right. has you know, poured some cold water on, on some stupidity. And I think that's e- either, a, uh, uh, either a, a simple desire to be able to, 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 to sleep at night and, and not feel like you've uh, sold your soul out. Uh, or uh, it's, I think, uh, trying to take the, uh, the long odds that there will be a, an anti-MAGA movement come 2024 and, and the time will be right for someone to turn to, mm. to Sass. Um, that's the real conundrum I, I find for these people who are, I think, um, uh, kissing Trump's ass right now, uh, in an effort to, to win over supporters, as long as Trump or Donald Trump Jr. or Ivanka Trump uh, is, is on the ballot somewhere in, in 2024, uh, all of that ass kissing doesn't do you any good. In fact, it only preserves their dominance of the party. Uh, at some point it would seem to be in their own political self-interest, uh, to break with the Trump family, you know, yeah. but, but we're not there yet. So can Donald Trump though, can, can he pass the political uh, power and clout on to Ivanka or, or Don Jr.? I, mean, I don't think so. Yeah. No. I don't, I'm, 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 I'm skeptical of this. I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical of anyone being able to be as Trumpy as Trump. There's something unique about yeah. Trump and his ability to get away with stuff that other people, if they try it, it won't work. I think that's right. I, I think with with Trump, what really set him apart a his 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 personality uh, is 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 such that I don't think you're going to see anything quite like him. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think the the key thing for Trump is that uh, so much of the American public um, thought they knew him before 2016. Uh, and and it was entirely fabricated. You know, a lot of what they thought they knew from him came from. Uh, the set of the apprentice, you know, and it's, you know, it's stylized shots of, you know, Trump tower or the Trump helicopter or whatever. And it made him look like a businessman who was in charge. And that's the image they got and the image they believed. Uh, but they thought they knew him. Right. And that's, uh, and, and once you've got that kind of decades of built in, some people have grown up their entire life with Donald Trump kind of in the background in home alone movies or, you know, Atlantic city or whatever, he was kind of always hanging out there. They thought they knew him and, and for better or worse, that baked in a certain, uh, level of support. Someone new coming along, someone who's maybe a more traditional politician, isn't going to have the benefit of that, that backstory, right? No, that, that, no, no that, that 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 is a great point. So at this moment, though, he's about to head into his post presidency, and a lot of people say, "Well, he's he's just as powerful as ex president." My take on it is he's still going to have a lot of power within the Republican Party, but being a defeated ex one term uh, ex president you're not as powerful as you are as president. So are we going to see him shrink and diminish in size as he gets further and further away from the white house or what, what do you think? 
It's hard to say. I mean, I, I could see an argument for the fact that, you know, in exile, he'll be able to do the, the parts of the presidency that he likes, right. which is, you know, to spend most of his time golfing and then hate tweeting uh, Fox and friends. Uh, uh, and he, he'll have full free time to do that and don't be burdened by any, you know, parts of the actual job. Uh, you know, he can call back into Fox and friends every, uh, every morning, like he used to, and, and, and just kind of hold sway. And he can't fail because he won't it, be doing anything. Exactly right. It's so, it's so much easier to, to criticize from the cheap seats than it is to actually uh, be held responsible for your job. So yeah. And, 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 and he would love that. So we'll certainly try that. Uh, but I do think it's, it's remarkable, you know, Jimmy Carter didn't lord over the democratic party uh, in the 1980s. You know, if you're a one-term uh, president who gets bounced out, you typically don't hold sway. Uh, and yet there's a, there's a certain uh, dynamic in the Republican party, I think largely due to the acquiescence of Republican officials in the, in the Senate and the, and the house and some governors too, uh, to let Trump maintain control. Uh, someone's got actually got to kind of wrestle this, this from him. Uh, and it would happen eventually with the, uh, the you know, the, the 2024 uh, presidential primaries, especially if he's not in it. Uh, but that seems a long time to wait uh, to try to erase the, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the, the Trump stain from the party. I, I'm guessing that Mitch McConnell is going to feel tremendously relieved on January 20th. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh yeah. Oh, he, he, he loves opposition too. I mean, that's, that's his game. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is the perfect moment for him that he's not going to have to put up with it, particularly as Donald Trump goes out the door, basically crapping on all Republicans. I mean, you think it's bad now. Can you imagine what it's going to be like after January 6th Oh, ridiculous! Um, yeah. when he's going to attack every single Republican that doesn't stand up and try to overturn the election, yep. which will be the vast majority of Republicans one hopes. Yep. Yeah. Kevin Cruz, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. I appreciate it very much. And hopefully you have a very, very, you and your family have a very, very happy new year. You too, Charlie. Great to be with you. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes, and we will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.